platform listeners, it's Claudia here from Clayview. We've researched 50 UK retailers and found 80% could improve personalised product discovery. Find out how. Download our new e-commerce discovery report at clayview.com forward slash UK report. Hello and welcome back to the Replatform podcast. Thanks as always for tuning in to listen. So another cracking episode lined up for you all today. And uh, it's uh, myself, James, always, and co-host Paul Rogers. Mr. Rogers, welcome back to, po- to the podcast, mate. Are you well? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm keeping well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. It's, uh, it feels bizarre because it's so dark at the moment, uh, uh, even in the early evening. It feels late at night and my body's a bit confused. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. Yeah, I've got the lights off as well. It definitely feels a bit, uh, a bit dark here. Yeah, I should probably put a light on that. Might actually help me. Um, but yeah, we've got we've got a bit of an interesting episode, haven't we? Slightly different um, uh, topic uh, today than one we've covered uh, on the podcast previously. But we're looking at the defining, managing, and implementing e-commerce roadmaps. So on the premise that you know, e-commerce teams and the wider business always have an, such an extensive uh, program of activity they want to push through, and different stakeholders have different priorities. And there's often a bun fight for who who gets the resource to deliver it and also which of those activities will deliver the best return on investment or the best results and which are more strategically aligned with the business. And it is a challenge to know what to focus on or or even to know where you might have gaps in your thinking and where there might be issues that you weren't aware of because you're so focused on your day-to-day work that you hadn't even noticed it. Uh, And often take, yeah, teams don't have the time to step back and think about it. Where do they prioritize the resource? How do they make sure it's executed properly and the right people are involved? So um, we've got a, an interesting guest with an interesting role on today. So I'll, I'll let uh, I'll let Lewis do the introductions of his role. But so welcoming Lewis Adamu from Loaf today. How are you, sir? Hey, guys. I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it has just dawned on me. We are speaking on the day of the great Google outage. Oh, think, gosh, yeah. In future years, we're going to be asking each other where we were. <laughs> On Where the day down. I wonder if it's linked because it's also the same day that London's gone into tier three of restrictions. So maybe maybe Google's tipped the balance. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you taking like always appreciate people taking the time. So do you want to give a bit of an introduction to yourself? So what you know, who you are, what you do, your background, and then then give us the the elevator pitch about Loaf as well, because I know a lot of people listening will know the, the 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 brand, but some might not know that much about it. Yeah, sure. So my role is e-commerce and technology strategist. Um, interestingly, it's a role that I conceived myself and pitched to the company, um, but essentially I own the tech stack. So I join all the dots together and I have a lateral view of the business and I sit just below board level and I report into our directors. Um, And the idea really is to bring that consistency to how we view tech, how we use it, how we procure it, um, how we run our roadmaps. um, And, you know, that encompasses everything from our e-commerce platform and development of our website through to our ERP platform, marketing tech. So, uh, platforms like Ametria, for example, and our payments ecosystem as well. Um, in terms of um, you know my my experience, I guess I started off um, in e-commerce and digital back in two thousand and nine. Um, so really, when digital transformation was really a thing, I'm not really sure if people are still talking about it now. But um, I worked in some web content roles, web project management, and then I jumped into Loaf back in 2013 originally and worked as the e-commerce manager uh, 
you know, oversaw like three website builds, a couple of ERP implementations, yeah, new email marketing platforms, and helped launch some new product propositions. We built like a custom built um, modular sofa builder for our website, which we're still using to this day and uh, still pretty proud of. Um, and then eventually I left Loaf in 2017 and uh, had this kind of two-week holiday. It was the first time I'd really taken a break in like four years and uh, went off to California, did the road trip up Highway 1 and uh, realized I needed something else and I just needed to diversify my experience. I so, love the fact it was, it was a road trip up the, the Pacific Coast Highway in California that did it. That's quite a good backdrop to, to uh, give yourself space to think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the story, I guess I can tell it now. And uh, my, my director and my colleagues at Loaf, uh, who are pretty much the same team that were there my first in, uh, won't mind me telling. But um, I, I actually, on the last night I was in California, I was uh, sat in an Airbnb in Oakland and I had my iPad out. And I was just thinking I really enjoyed this trip and all these new experiences. And I, I would kind of want to continue that when I get home. And so I was looking around on LinkedIn and I saw this job for an e-commerce director uh, role at Borough Kitchen. And uh, I got, dropped them a note and they said, they replied miraculously within like a couple of hours and said, if you can get an application in, we'll, we'd like to consider it, even though we've actually lined someone up. And so I had to type up my uh, CV on my iPad that night, <laughs> send it off, um, get back to London the next morning. And they asked me to come in that day for an interview if I wanted to be considered. So off, uh, after a 12 and a half hour flight back from Oakland, went straight into an interview and it just clicked and it really worked. And the role was much more diverse in terms of it was, um, as well as all the web development, it also focused on trading, performance management, email marketing. And that's where I first met Paul and worked with him. And then eventually Loaf came knocking again and uh, in mid 2019, and they'd had a bit of a restructure and they asked if I would be interested in coming back to my original role. And I guess this is where, the context of being away for a couple of years is really important because I realized that I, I missed the company and I missed the culture as a real kind of, you know, get everything done kind of attitude there. And it's like really visionary kind of leadership, but I didn't want to go back to my old role, which felt quite restrictive. And so we started talking about what I would come back for. And we realized it was the right person for the right company, but maybe not the right role. And that's where I conceived this idea of, kind of combining the best of the role I had at Loaf originally with yeah. more of an e-commerce director role. And yeah, I pitched the idea to them and I just said, look, you need someone who is going to have this overview of your entire technology stack and someone who's going to look after um, all the roadmaps for development, someone who's going to introduce consistency to how you scope out technology, um, how you procure it, how you implement it, and someone who's going to future-proof the business from that respect. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting. I mean, what a fantastic role to be able to pitch and for people to listen because because traditionally in a lot of businesses the IT director owns this and it's done from the technical point of view, but it doesn't encompass that kind of wider business element which you're doing in terms of the whole that roadmap and impact and the, the stakeholder piece. So, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to getting into into this episode. But um, I guess before we start firing those questions, it'd be useful to, for people um, listening to understand what is the overall technology stack at Loaf then. Uh, uh, that, that you're looking after, you know, is it is it in in one particular like vendor space, or is it really varied, and has that changed significantly over the last few years? Oh, great question. So maybe I'll start with the change actually, because um, I guess coming back into life, 
I came back on the 1st of November 2019 and the very first thing I wanted to do and which I did do was put together the first ever company-wide systems architecture map and I wanted to understand all the different systems the business was using, how they were integrated together, who owned them, um, where there were data silos, where data was being handled manually, for example, any like single points of failure. And that completely changed my view, actually, of a company I thought I knew really well. I suddenly had this different perspective on. And what it allowed us to do was understand where we were at that very moment in time and where we wanted to get to in terms of um, our, our continued growth in like three to five years time and just thinking about all those incremental steps we could take to get there. But essentially what, where we were back then was that we had grown organically. And I think so many companies will, will be able to relate to this story, which is that you start off as a small business and you have an e-commerce platform. You start growing and you get an email marketing platform. Then you continue growing and you might get a new payment gateway. Then you might get some kind of analytics package. And then before you know it, none of these systems are really talking to each other, right? And you don't have any overview of like all your customer data, your transaction data, your inventory data. And before, you know, if you, the longer you leave it to address that, the harder it gets to untangle that mess. And what we tried to do over the past 12 months is work out from a very holistic perspective, like what are the functions that we need? So for example, like we had a really old email marketing system and we were thinking, is that really what we need or do we need something that's more focused around marketing automation across channels? And we put this model together that's all built around a custom built like data warehouse that sits at the core of everything with our architecture. And what that's doing is pulling and pushing data to all the different platforms now so that we, whatever platform you're using, you have the same view of the data that you would somewhere else. And we slowly moved away from our old marketing platform, um, email platform, sorry, through to Ametria for email marketing um, and marketing automation. We're using a platform called The Framework for our e-commerce platform, and that's built by an agency called D3R. Um, we've diversified our payments uh, ecosystem as well. So we've introduced Klarna financing. So we're really trying to have this hub and spoke model and then over time pull out the components that aren't quite doing a good enough job and replacing them with best of breeds or a tool that is more suited to our requirements. So on the e-commerce the e uh, platform, I know Paul will come to it in a minute, but I guess what, what I'm interested in, just from a high-level strategic, because it's, I mean, that is that is a, a real challenging overall picture to get to, isn't it, in terms of what the, the wider strategy is. What, what was the starting point? Like, did, was it a, a question of, hey, hey, Lewis, we want you to help us decide the e-commerce platform and then think about the broader ecosystem? Or was it, did you approach it from a different point of view? Um, I mean, going back into the business in November 2019, I had this in-tray of, um, we have to sort out the inefficiencies and the risks that are involved with how we market to our customers. Um, we have to sort out our payments. And there was two projects within that. And we have to sort out our infrastructure for the website. And the reason for those things was pretty clear because actually when it came to marketing, and we're talking specifically about email and SMS here and all the automation and broadcast campaigns that we run, we had a platform that meant that everything had to be done in HTML, which was really slow. 
um, we had to manually handle all the data. So all of the segmentation had to be done outside of the platform and then the data re-imported, which is always a risk. Um, we looked at the person who was doing all this work day to day is a brilliant uh, marketer. And we looked at the opportunity cost of like, if she's spending all of her time doing that, what are all the other great things that she could be doing to inspire our customers or to help them understand things such as where is their order in terms of the fulfillment um, schedule? And we just decided that you know, that had to be the number one priority. And we'd been on the same platform for I think, seven years. It was one of the first things I actually launched at Loaf back in 2013. So that was really clear. And there was board level approval for that. And you know, we went after it. And within the first eight weeks of being back, we'd gone out to market, gone through a process of scoping out all the vendors, meeting with all the vendors, going through... Um, requirements gathering process and actually selecting a vendor, negotiating, signing the contract. And I think it was exactly eight weeks to the day when we actually started the implementation process, which was pretty rapid after coming back. And I guess the, the other main priority was around payments because up until that point, Loafit always only ever had one method for making a payment, which was through a traditional payment gateway. And it was seen as a single point of failure, but it was also seen as, I guess, a failure for, for people who aspire to be our customers because as the business is getting bigger and as the business is becoming more and more well-known around the country, we knew that for a certain type of person, maybe even people you know, within my own kind of demographic, really, that um, you might want the product, you might be inspired by the product, and you might be inspired by all the money that Loaf puts into its marketing activity, such as the beautiful photography or the brochures we send out. But then you might decide the payment methods aren't flexible enough. I can't afford this right now, so I'm going to go elsewhere where they have consumer financing. So the other main priority for us was about introducing consumer financing, but to benefit our customers and to widen the net so that we became more accessible to people. And lastly, I guess with all the growth that we've seen throughout the year, we moved into TV advertising for the first time. And we realized that we hadn't touched our hosting infrastructure for about five years. And uh, it was still the same architecture and the same like, platforms that we used that I introduced back in 2015. And we realized that that just wasn't going to work if we started doing, you know, large-scale TV advertising and we had these sudden spikes of traffic coming to the website. So that was another thing we realized that we had to prioritize. And we've been working through throughout the year to doing that and uh, upgrading that infrastructure. And it's been done just in time for our Christmas sale now. Great. Um, so do, you've mentioned D3R a couple of times, which is an interesting e-commerce platform I've seen a few times. Um, and actually, someone that I used to work with recently moved to it and has been pretty positive about it. Um, how have you found working with it? And it sounds like you've been working for a long time. How, is that, how has your kind of usage of the platform changed in that time? That's a good question. So, I mean, what I'd say about D3R is they are founded by and run by developers. So, it's quite, quite a unique um, setup that they've got. And the guys who founded it are brothers. They're, they're, they're really tight. They're really honest with each other and their clients. Um, and they've built a really, really great team of developers and UX specialists who are really commercially savvy. Um, we've been with them for 10 years now. And in those 10 years, we've had the same senior developer for the last seven years. So there's really, really low churn in terms of staff. 
which I think is quite unique. Most agencies I've worked with, um, you know, you'd be lucky to keep the same developer for a year, but most of the time you're, you're changing from project to project. And in those 10 years, we've never had to re-platform. It's a platform that's scaled up and down with us. And by that, I mean, we originally started off just using them for our website and our e-commerce platform. And at one point, we actually had a custom-built ERP solution. So we were doing all of our inventory management, supply chain management through the platform. And I know some businesses still use that with them. But at one point, I think in 2016, we decided that we needed to diversify our systems architecture and I guess not place all our eggs in one basket. So we moved over all the ERP solution to Microsoft Dynamics. But these guys have helped us every step of the way. And I think, you know, they've, they've uh, provided a huge amount of consultancy advice over the years. And one thing I'd say is that when we're onboarding with new tech partners, such as Ametria or Klarna, you know you're working with good people when they're glowing in their feedback about your developers. Like They really enjoyed working with D3R's technical team. Um, and I'd say the guys, are, they're really motivated. They're on the front foot and they take real ownership of their client's well-being. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting, and they'll probably hate me for telling you this, uh, especially if it's recorded, is that we've got a WhatsApp group set up and for, for like emergencies, for those kind of 2 a.m. scenarios where you get a pingdom alert to tell you your website's gone down. And those guys never cease to amaze me in the fact that they will, the, even the founder of the agency and our senior developer, they'll be picking those messages up in the middle of the night. Half the time, they've already realized there's a problem before you've you know, been woken up by that message and they've already started fixing it. So I think in terms of the platform itself, the I mean, you know, someone who's used Magento One and Shopify, Shopify Plus, I can say that kind of takes the best out of both platforms. So it's really good at bulk data management. It's really easy to implement new plugins, although they do require a certain amount of customization by your developers. But the platform's like really, really robust. It's speedy. Um, you know, over the years, we've built some brilliant scheduling tools for um, launching new content, um, launching new pricing, um, launching new products. So these days, you know, we never we never sat there on the day of the launch of any campaign, kind of wondering, oh, have we have we gone? Do we need to go through this checklist of things that must go live today? Because we've already set everything up and queued it, and we've got great visibility of it in the system. Uh, additionally, as a business that has literally hundreds of thousands of SKUs, the platform is amazing at managing that the the level of data required to optimize a product feed of that size. So, you know, we're, we're joking earlier about the Google outage today, um, but I can honestly say in, in the seven years that I've used this platform, that it's probably been unavailable less than, you know, five times. It's, it's really, really reliable. Great. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've got um, a really good service from them and I've heard pretty good things about them recently. Um, your role is a really interesting one at Loaf that we've already talked about a little bit in terms of kind of your day-to-day and maybe more focus on the roadmap. Um, so I guess a question on that, like, do you completely stay out of the day-to-day kind of trading and like performance side of things? Um, or, and are you solely focused on projects and optimization or do you still kind of, um, get involved from time to time? Like, yeah, how, do, how does it work from a day-to-day perspective? 
So day to day, I don't get too involved um, with trading performance. I keep a really close eye on how we're doing. And I seek out you know, advice from customer teams on um, what's going on, like what, you know, what are customers saying to us or what are they asking about, what problems are they facing? But I guess I'm really focused on keeping the business looking forward and future-proofing the business and making sure that we are positioning ourselves in a way that we can scale up to you know, double or treble the size of the business in the next few years. Um, and really, I'm always the one asking the awkward questions about, you know, how we're working, like why we're doing things. Is it really working towards our mission statement? And I guess one of the, the big things with my role is I love finding problems, which sounds insane to most people. But for me, you know, problem is a, you know, a problem is something tangible that, you know, I can replicate, I can measure it, I can define it, and I can address it, right? And it's a clear starting point. And I spend a lot of my days just going around the business, kind of identifying these problems. So it could one day I could be looking on the website and I could see a UX problem. I could see that maybe there's too many steps involved in how to configure one of our sofas, for example. And later that same day, I could be auditing an entire business process across um, our merchandising and purchasing teams and thinking about how we could automate parts of it with our ERP system. So it's a pretty unique role. Um, maybe it should be called like chief problem solver, but um, I guess I'm just like a generalist and pretty proud of it. I think lots of people like to be specialists in their areas and um, I like to take those skills that I think are transferable and my mindset and just apply them to different parts of the business. And one I, of the I love things that, that I love that idea of, uh, you know, uh, elevating the value of a generalist because I'm with you on that. I mean, I would, I mean, it's, it's self-interested because I'm a generalist as well. And yeah. you can't survive with only generalists and you can't survive with only specialists. So the, the two skills are completely complementary. It sounds amazing. You're basically describing what would if if when I was client side, I could have had this this type of job. I would have definitely uh, definitely stayed longer at client side. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I mean, hopefully this will inspire other people to you know to reach out to their leaders or the leadership teams and their businesses and actually suggest roles like this because I think it's actually I would say it's massively liberating because I don't feel like I. I don't have any set agenda here other than that I want the business to be as good as it possibly can be, right? And, you know, being a generalist as well, and you've hit the nail on the head, which is that, you know, generalists can't survive without the specialist and likewise the other way around. And I think one thing that I keep saying to, to the business and to our directors is, you know, when you can get the right group of people in the right place at the right time, and everyone understands why they've been brought together as a group, then putting the right processes in place, that, that is the solution, right? Like, let's forget the light bulb moments. It's like, let's just get the right people there, have the right discussions, set, create the, that framework of working and put the right governance in place. And the solutions will reveal themselves to us. And that I find is like a really inspirational way of working for me. And I feel like it, it takes the pressure off people as well, because I think too often people feel like they're, under the cosh trying to find a solution to a very difficult problem and 
you know, really what you need to do is just go back to the drawing board and actually work together as a group to, to find that solution. It definitely. And it's really interesting because project leadership is obviously an absolutely critical part of what you're doing and, and the, the communicating across diverse stakeholder groups. So what will be interesting here, because some of the things you talked about seem that there will be elements of like using data and analytics to identify issues or other bits, which is just exploratory where an issue comes to you. What are some of the projects you've worked on so far since since taking on this role? Can you pull out like one or two where it's been a, you know, a light bulb moment of, oh, cool, we've got something tangible to go after? Yeah, so one of the key projects I've worked on this year would be our migration from our old email marketing platform to Ametria, which is now looking after all of our marketing automation. And the process we went through, I guess, is more of a business analyst kind of mindset, which is that we sat down with our marketing assistant and our data analyst, and we recorded every single step that they would both take from the point of conceiving a new campaign um, for email marketing through to the send and then the, and the analysis. So we looked at everything from uh, actually building the email campaign, which was all being done in HTML. We looked at how that person would then build the mailing list for that, which would require a data export and then manipulation in Excel and then re-import. Um, through to what would happen after the send and how, how the analysts would actually gather the data on the performance of the campaign and how they would then include that within a wider marketing analytics package. And what we realized was that we, we'd basically inadvertently come up with this process for un understanding how many steps we had to go through to carry out this activity um, and then how much time was being spent on it and what the cost of it was. And we also thought about the opportunity cost of not doing this, right, of not moving away from our old platform. And we took that to market and we spoke to a number of vendors, obviously Ametria being the successful one. But we, we, we told them our process and asked them to tell us, like, how would you make this better and how, you know, what's it going to look like with you? And as well as that, we also kind of mapped out our key you know the business processes and the scenarios which we wanted to carry out to help our customers with by using the platform and we 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 recorded all of those and we gave them to the vendors and we asked them to score themselves about five on everything and we told we were really open to them about saying you know we want you to tell us how more how much more efficient you can make us we want you to score yourself on this set of criteria and we're going to use it to review how accurate you are at the end before we actually go live and so eventually you know we decided upon a metria because we realized that they were laser focused in their mission about helping retailers communicate better with their customers um, they were the only ones who were really focused on keeping things simple and i think there's too many vendors out there who just seem to forget, or maybe they just don't empathize with the fact that, you know, when you're working on the client side, you know, you're always pushed for resource and time. You're always running a pretty lean team. There's always something else you can be doing. There's always another project that's on the go and that this isn't your sole focus, right? And Demetri were really understanding of that. And they really, really wanted to make things not as simple as possible, but I'd say they wanted to make it as efficient as possible. And they ended up becoming almost like an extension of our in-house team and ever since. And 
So how do you assess the different solutions generally? Like, would you apply that approach um, often or kind of across all of the problems you're looking to solve? And then also, how do you assess the solution you're putting in place once you've rolled it out? Yeah, great question. So I think the key is consistency here. So that's the one thing that I realized was lacking when I came back. Um, so I guess I've been really influenced by projects that have gone right, but more so by projects that I've been involved with where things really haven't gone right and you've been a bit burnt. Um, so the, what, I, what I kind of, what's influenced me, I'd say, is that those projects that haven't gone right, when I look back on them, you know, I think that there's too much of people pointing the finger at each other and actually there's less, there's not enough of people looking at, you know, why did this project fail and, or why did it not go to plan? And usually it's to do with some pretty basic things, right? It's like, it's about communication lines or having clear roles and responsibilities or structure. Um, and it's also being really clear about what you're actually trying to address, like what problems and what success should look like. And I guess, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm totally obsessed with finding problems. That's the starting point of every project I work on. We haven't got a clearly defined problem. Nothing's happening. So, you know, that's my, my, that's my go-to. You know, have to be able to define something that's tangible that we can work on and agree really clearly. And I think that after that, you know, it's like kind of looking at the existing processes that are in place or all the existing steps you're going through to carry something out or not doing something at the moment. Um, and I guess when you're thinking about, you know, measuring impact post-launch, regardless of what it is, you know, I think too often I've been involved in projects in the past where that's an afterthought and you've kind of gone live and then you start asking the question, how do we how do we know this is actually doing what we want it to be doing? And so it's actually better, I find, that right at the very beginning, when you're even talking about these problems, you're then thinking about, well, where do we actually want to get to? Because if you don't measure, kind of record that and agree it with all your stakeholders and your project sponsors, it's very difficult to take those steps to achieve that success, right? So I think it's really about defining the problems, like measuring the cost of those problems, assessing the opportunity cost of not solving these and not being able to work on other projects by freeing up your time. And then really clearly defining the scope of your project, you know, like, why are we doing this? And, and that's, again, I find too often that people blur the lines here between the scope and the requirements. And to me, they're very different things and the scope has to come first. Um, and then once you've done that, you know, you can start thinking about the what I would call like the universal criteria, which you're going to measure all the providers against. So, you know, you don't want to be measuring apples against pears, right? So you want to be measuring each vendor against the same set of criteria. And, and by that, I'm not talking about technical requirements. So it's not things like, you know, I must have this bit of functionality that personalizes a banner over it. That's not a requirement. That's just a method of addressing a certain need. And, you know, it's really tempting to get wowed by all the cool things that a tech platform can do. But, you know, really the platform's only ever as good as how, you know, the user intends to use it and actually does use it, right? And um, so I think it's just best to keep things simple at this stage. And, you know, one thing I'd say as well is like cultural fit. There's definitely not enough emphasis, I find, on assessing the, cult the right cultural fit between two organizations, especially when you're talking about um, like a, you know, a B2C client and a tech vendor as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, some really good tips in there, I think. Um, and 
your roadmap in 2020, I guess, has probably been impacted by COVID. Um, what are some of the things you've had to change, I guess? And also, what are some of the most impactful things that you've worked on this year? Yeah, great question. I don't think anyone's come through 2020 unscathed, have they? Including their roadmaps. Um, I think for us, um, I remember having this meeting with our directors just as COVID hit. And we were all kind of debating about what to do, right? Like uh, like I said, the, the supply chain, distribution, manufacturing, it all shut down. And, you know, we, we kind of had this long debate and we've all worked together for a long time. And I guess in that time, we've seen many kind of uh, crises in the news. So whether it's snap elections, Brexit, uh, Donald Trump being elected you know we were all there t- together through all of them and you always see these blips and these kind of moments of uncertainty and it's really tempting to try and de-risk the situation by you know pulling back on the, the investments you're making as a business so whether that's in in terms of your paid media or whether it's in terms of your capex spend into new projects but really what we what we realized was you know with every crisis like this and I know this is unprecedented, but that with every crisis, there's always there's always the other side, right? Everyone comes out the other side. And so we sensed that there was an opportunity here. And we, we started seeing that our, com- our competition were pulling back on spend. And they were, and we, we heard through our agencies um, and various partners that other you know, competitors were pulling back on their projects and pausing things or canceling things. And we just thought we've got to go for it here. So actually for us, it was more about, you know, keeping a steady hand. And actually, if anything, we put our foot down on the gas a bit more. And we probably did two or three years worth of work in the space of, you know, nine months this year. So we, you know, we moved to Ametria. We launched consumer finance for the first time. We rebuilt the entire front end of our website, which is still ongoing. Um, you know, and we we reacted to the situation as well. So we were really agile. And when it first hit um, with the lockdown in March this year, um, one of the first things we did was we thought, right, well, you know, what are all the key metrics of the business? And one of them for us is always the volume of swatch requests for like fabric samples that are coming through on our website. And we always say that's an indicator of future sales two or three months down the line. And we noticed that the volumes of requests were dropping even though web traffic was remaining relatively stable at the time. And so we thought, like, what can we do about this? And within four days, I remember, we'd, we'd identified a problem, which was that when you come on our website, you see all these, you know, lovely photography, which we've invested, you know, a lot of money and time into to, to taking and presenting on the website. And you wouldn't actually be able to order a fabric sample of the fabric that a product was upholstered in, in one of these shots. And we developed this new what we call express function to order so every single image was tagged with the fabric that was shown in it and you could just order the fabric within two clicks and you know that that was designed or conceived of and designed and built and launched within four days and it's been one of the most impactful things we worked on in years in the company oh sounds uh, yeah it's always challenging when you we try and do loads of things at once but i imagine massively satisfying when it pays off yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one, one of the things that was really satisfying about launching this express swatch function is actually the amount of feedback we had from customers just saying how easy it was um, to actually find those swatches and order them. Because in the past, 
they'd see a, a lovely image, they'd see the fabric, they, they'd, you know, they'd want that sample, um, but they would have to go off to another page where there was 150 samples and then find it in order to order it. And so, you know, we've just, we've reduced the stress load on the customer, which is always nice. I think that's always a positive thing. Take the stress away from the customer, make life easier for them. Who, uh, it's, uh, it's a shame not every business thinks like that, though, to be honest. There's still enough evidence to suggest, that, uh, especially in site search as well, that it doesn't happen. Um, so what are some of the key areas you're looking at in 2021? Like, do you have specific areas already prioritised? Do you have a roadmap agreed? Or are you still in that de- decision phase? I guess we're still partly in decision phase. There's some things we have agreed on. But the key areas really are we're going to keep investing in the UX of our website. So we want to make it super, super easy to, to order on our site, to configure products. Um, so at the moment, you know, we get a lot of great feedback, but we know that we can do better. So there's certain parts of the site, such as building a sofa, um, we want to make the whole thing possible without any page reloading, for example. So that's something that we're looking at for next year. Um, performance and infrastructure is something that's ongoing and will continue optimizing, especially as we um, do more and more TV advertising. Payments as well, I think is a big one for us. Even though we've introduced Klarna financing, it's not to say that there's a lot of back office processes that can be improved in terms of the payments ecosystem. Um, Personalization and testing is a big one for us. And I guess, you know, it's something that I'd love to talk to you two about because I get approached, you know, as everyone on the client side does, I get approached by vendors all the time, and especially in the personalization space at the moment. And one of the things I keep saying to them is that it's definitely an area I'm interested in. It's an area that I think Loaf will invest in eventually, but I don't want to invest in a platform that I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it just yet. And so it's about, you know, really kind of... um, having a clear idea in mind about how Loaf will dip its toes into this area and what we're actually going to do with it and what we expect and how it's going to benefit our customers. And I guess it's just more, we don't have the bandwidth right now to think about that, but it's something that we know we will definitely need to move into. Um, aside from that, I guess, you know, we really, really, um, committed at the moment to improving the operational side of our business and that sounds quite boring but actually what that will eventually allow us to do is we will be allowed to you know able to allow our customers to do online order tracking and management so a lot of our products are made to order on long lead times and as anyone who's bought any new furniture as, as of late especially when it's configurable will be able to appreciate that you change your mind a lot and you might decide you've bought a sofa and then a week later, while it's still seven weeks away in the production schedule, you might want a different fabric. And, you know, all of that comes with a lot of systemic requirements, right, in order to be able to do that without disrupting the flow of that order and getting it to the customer on time. And we know that that's um, something our customers want. So it's something we're really focused on delivering in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and we also, you know, a lot of our customer base are home movers and there's just really basic things like people wanting to update the address of where they want their shipments delivered. And, you know, that causes all sorts of inefficiencies in our business as of today. And something that we know is not just an inefficiency for us, but really actually impacts the customer because they have to email us, wait for us to do something and then get back to them. And it, it takes time and it's just not something that we... Uh, we're happy with and we want to strive for something better, I guess. 
Great. Um, and what are your thoughts on some of the other kind of key trends generally in e-com going into 2021? So I guess things like, you know, the headless front end stack, uh, things like PIM, various other things, you know, AR, VR, etc. Um, is there anything else that's, you know, particularly interesting um, to you or any kind of vendors that you're, you know, particularly interested in for 2021? Yeah, I guess the, the key ones for me really are AR is hitting down the head there is top of the list for us. So we're really excited about the developments taking place in our space at the moment and what some of our competitors have started doing. And, you know, that might sound a bit crazy, like, but we, we do take inspiration from our competitors and we love it when they raise the bar because it forces us to do the same. And some of the things we've seen from especially uh, North American uh, kind of furniture retailers is pretty special in terms of being able to like view a sofa or a bed in the room of your choice at home through the, the, the camera of your mobile phone. Um, and this is kind of stuff that five years ago, it wasn't even possible, right? It wasn't in the realms of reality, but now you can do it. And that technology is only going to keep developing and it's really going to benefit customers, I think. And in the way that it's going to help them make the right choice quicker. Aside from that, I think um, one thing that we're really interested in at the moment is video live chat and especially because of covid restrictions that have hit this year um, the eight stores that we have around the uk have all had to be be shoved at various points and it's a real shame having that real estate there with all this beautiful furniture and you know really inspirational kind of decor um kind of just offline and we realized that actually it would be amazing in the long run that you could go onto the website and if you wanted to have a a look at a particular part of a product or you wanted to just chat to someone face-to-face, you could just do so online. And I've seen some really great examples from people like Ribble, Cycles, um, Samsung, you know, and they, I think they've really raised the bar this year in that sense. Um, I mean, additionally, aside from that, I think we're going to see more and more investment in some pretty cool video content and it's going to be delivered pretty quickly, I think. So one example I saw the other day was with Lick Paint, but, um, you, know, you go on one of their listing pages, it's pretty rapid. I think it's a headless Shopify site. But, um, you know, in the time that it would normally take to load a banner, they've loaded a whole video that's full screen and it's pretty amazing content. And I think it's uh, definitely something that we'd love to consider moving forward. Fantastic. It's, it's good because I, I love the fact every time you're coming back to the customer experience, basically, which is good, not just executing something because it's popular, but actually executing it so it's right for a business and be the customer. Yeah, I think when we're talking about the front end of our website, or just generally any any content we produce from our website through to, might be a bit of print material that you find in one of our shacks, as we call them, but it's always just about you know delighting the customer, making them happy, but also helping them make the right choice, right? We, we don't want to just sell people anything. We're not that kind of business. Um, you'll never find that we do a hard sell anywhere. Um, we're really laid back about it. And, you know, we, we want our customers to make a decision in their own time. And great if they make it quickly, but ultimately, as long as they come to the right decision, we're happy because they're happy. Yeah, not, nice outlet to have. Um, that's one of the key questions we wanted to, to ask. Though. So I really appreciate you um, taking the time to, to, to answer questions and explain what you do and how you do it and your approaches. I think this would have been really interesting for people listening in because it's common challenges. Like, you know, everyone wants to do a million and one things and move at 100 miles an hour, but that takes time and effort and planning and resource and prioritisation. So common challenges. And I think there's probably a few people out there sitting in going, 
Hmm. I wish my job role was more like that. And now we're going to have that conversation, like you said, with uh, with their various bosses. So hopefully it's inspired people. Um, and for, for those of you listening, thanks as always for listening in. Uh, if anyone's got any questions, Lewis, I, I guess questions about you know, some of the projects you talked about, or even questions about how you went about setting up this role, um, how would people like reach out to you and, uh, and, and ask you any questions? Well, there's two ways. Thankfully, I am the only person with my name, I believe, on the internet. So <laughs> you can find me pretty easily on LinkedIn. So it's just Lewis, it's L-O-U-I-S, and it's Adamu, it's A-D-A-M-O-U. Um, or you can get me on the same, it's just Lewis Adamu at loaf.com. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much. And as always, anyone listening, if there's any questions for myself or Paul or anything you want to follow up discussing after this, give us a shout and uh, keep your ears peeled for the next episode. Uh, thanks again, Lewis. Have a great evening. Thanks so much for having me.